This is The Guardian. Today, more of us are out of work with long-term sickness than ever before. Why? Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. To live with anxiety, it feels like you are on edge constantly. Almost as if there is somebody looking over your shoulder all the time, that like you're never alone, always on edge, always a little bit paranoid. For your body to be on high alert day in and day out for weeks on end, it is debilitating and it is exhausting. This is Ridian. He's 30 and he lives in Bridgend in South Wales. He spent all of his adult life with anxiety and depression. As for depression, imagine if you're grieving for a lost loved one, if somebody really close to you has just passed away, and you have that feeling following you all your life. After I finished secondary school, I did my A-levels. I attempted to go to university... I didn't really realise at the time just how bad my mental health was. And as soon as I got into university, everything just sort of hit. But that's when I was at my worst. I lasted about a year and then had to drop out. What Ridian didn't know then was that he also has ADHD, which, among other things, was making it really hard for him to focus. I was working as a retail assistant out of the shop in clothing. But I was also responsible for managing online sales and updating the website and reply to emails. And it was just, it was a, for somebody who really wasn't in the best place mentally, it wasn't a very good place to start my uh, career, shall we say. He left that first job because he was overwhelmed. He couldn't do everything he was being asked to all at once. And his depression took over. Going to work and then having to leave work due to illness made me very, very unwell. I don't think I left my house for about a year. I couldn't face going out. I just wanted to stay indoors and not face the world. Ridian was too ill to work for most of his 20s. But now he's got the right medication, he's starting to feel confident to look for jobs again. Now that I feel like I'm in a better place where I think, oh, I actually can work, not working is just very, very frustrating. And it's, I feel antsy. It's like, oh, I actually do want to get out of work if somebody could give me the chance. But finding that one company to take a chance on somebody who has spent a long time out of work has proven to be more difficult than I expected. More people in the UK are unable to work because of long-term sickness 
than ever before. When many of them want to work, why isn't society enabling them to? From The Guardian, I'm Hannah Moore. Today in Focus, the personal and economic costs of long-term sickness. Larry Elliott, you're the economics editor for The Guardian, and you've been writing about the reasons why millions of people of working age are off work with long-term illnesses. What is the scale of this? There are about 2.8 million people who are described as inactive due to long-term health or sickness problems. It's gone up by a third in five years. So in 2019, it was 2.1 million, which was still quite high, but it's now 2.8 million. So something has happened in the last four or five years, which has led to a really sharp increase in the number of people who are being essentially pensioned out of the workforce because of long-term sickness. Okay. And what kinds of issues are people having? What are people sick with? The Office for National Statistics, which actually produces the figures, doesn't actually know in any great detail, but it's quite clear that some of it is physical, some of it is mental. There are three big factors, I think, which probably explain it, all of which are linked to the pandemic in some way. One is that people have got long COVID, people who have been affected long term by the pandemic. The second factor is that there are people who have been waiting for a long time for their treatment on the NHS who are being affected by lengthening NHS waiting lists. So NHS waiting lists are now seven and a half million procedures waiting for action. So that's obviously been a factor. And the third thing is I think the pandemic did actually lead to a big increase in stress, loneliness, mental health issues of all sorts. And it was clear to me at the time that this would be a slow burn effect on the economy, that there would be an impact of having people locked up in their homes for a long period of time, not able to get out, not able to socialise. And is it people of all ages, all demographics? Yes, it is. There's been a big increase in the number of people who are in their 50s and 60s who have become economically inactive. But also there's been a big increase in economic inactivity due to ill health amongst young people, people under the age of 25. So it's certainly not confined to one age group. The Resolution Foundation put out a report last week that found that one in 20 young people, so 5%, couldn't work last year because of poor health, in particular mental health. That's extremely concerning, isn't it? Oh, it's totally unprecedented. I mean, you know, young people that start their lives, they should be living full lives. And obviously, if they're not capable of holding down a job because they're not well enough, that is a really big tragedy for them. And it's bad news for the economy too, obviously. How is it affecting the economy to have so many people out of work at the moment? People talk about a tight labour market, and we have a tight labour market in the UK. By that, they mean that there are more jobs available than there are people to fill them. And the number of job vacancies has come down a bit since the lockdown ended. But the peak, there were 1.2 million job vacancies. It's now down to about just over 900,000. There's still a very high number of employers who are looking for people to fill their jobs. And the workforce, the number of people who are actually looking for work or working is actually smaller than it was pre-pandemic. That's unusual in terms of modern developed countries. So France, Germany, the US have all got their workforces back above their pre-pandemic levels. We are struggling. One of the factors there is the number of people who are inactive due to long-term health. Having all of these people out of work, does it mean that it's going to cause a lot of problems for them in the future? 
It certainly does. All the evidence from labour market economists suggests that the longer people are out of the workforce, the longer they go without working, the tougher it is for them to actually get re-engaged with the world of work. Quite a lot of what governments of all sorts have tried to do is get people back into work as soon as they can after they stop working because there is long-term scarring effects on people's ability. They just lose the ability to hold down a job the longer they're out of the labour market. So the long-term impact of this is really detrimental to those people. We have had a problem with long-term sickness for many, many years. So the more deprived an area is, the more likely it is to have a high number of people out of the workforce due to long-term sickness or ill health. So that clearly is an issue not just for the overall economy, but for the local economies of those areas. How long has this problem been building for? In the 1980s, lots of people who were former coal miners or worked in heavy industry of some sort or another, who had worked into their 40s and 50s and then were made redundant. Wrexham, North Wales. Everyone is unemployed in this small close. At number one, Michael Partington. And both my parents are disabled, and since I become redundant, I become more or less dependent on them instead of it being the other way around. Number two, Kevin Skelly. Been unemployed for 12 weeks now. Since I've been made redundant, I've been in trouble with the police, but I've got no better to do. Number three, David. There were two ways that you could deal with them if you were the government. You could count them as unemployed, or you could say, these people are never going to work again. We'll find a way of taking them off the unemployment count. And so what they did was that they counted them as long-term sick or disabled. These people then didn't have to look for work in order to get their state benefits. So they were effectively, they were pensioned off early by the government as a way of massaging the unemployment statistics. You can find even now that there are parts of the country, former coal mining communities, former areas that had lots of manufacturing, where the unemployment rate is quite low, but there's what people call hidden unemployment, people who are not working, not active, and not looking for work because they're deemed to be unfit for work. Definitely the case where I grew up. That was a chronic issue which had lasted for many, many years and hadn't really been effectively dealt with. So there was a problem, but the problem has become a lot worse The number of people on NHS waiting lists, when the last Labour government left office in 2010, that was about 2.5 million people on waiting lists. Now it's three times that. There are clearly so many factors that have led to us getting to this point. But, I mean, you all have seen the headlines as these figures have come out over the past few weeks, particularly in the right-wing press. Things like Generation Sick Note, suggesting that people should be taking responsibility for their own health, that they can't expect the state to be helping them, that they should be doing everything they can to try and get back into work. Should we be giving that sort of narrative any credence? Are a lot of people claiming benefits that they're not really entitled to for sickness? I don't think anybody's come up with any evidence that people are swinging the lead or playing the system. I think that maybe we need to get to the root cause of the problem, which is that clearly there are an awful lot of unhappy, miserable people out there and just demonising them and saying that they are sick note Britain. I mean, it just seems to me to be a travesty of the truth, really. Some of these right-wing papers were also banging on about 
long-term impacts of the lockdown and trying to say that we should ease the lockdown sooner because of the long-term health impact that it would have. And we are now seeing those predictions come to light. So, I mean, I just think saying to people need to take responsibility for their own actions. I mean, people want to take responsibility for their own actions. It's a bit of a slur on these people to say that they are the agents of their own misfortune when clearly there are big external factors at play here. So I got diagnosed in 2017 because I basically spent my entire teenage years in horrendous pain. Alexandra's 26 now and she lives in Torquay in Devon. She's got endometriosis and that's a condition that causes tissues similar to those that line the uterus to grow outside it in other parts of her body. I used to get really bad migraines. My periods were... Absolutely insane. I used to have bleed for two weeks, then not for 40 days. The pain would make me pass out. I'd be being sick and no one could tell me what was wrong. And then I got to the beginning of 2017 and I was just not eating. I couldn't work. I'd lost my job because I was so unwell I couldn't go in, but I didn't have a reason for them. So I essentially got fired. And then it just kind of progressed from there until I eventually saw one gynecologist who was like, oh, I think you have endo. Your conditions, unfortunately, got a lot worse. And you've now got stage four, severe endometriosis. What's it like for you every day now? What are the physical pains that you have? There's not a day that I don't go without pain. I went from being quite able-bodied to now quite disabled. I need to use my walking stick every day. Sometimes I use my wheelchair. I can't drive a manual car anymore. I have to drive automatic because of the damage to my legs. I have incontinence problems, so at 26 I wear nappies, which isn't great, but that's where I am. What's that meant for you in terms of work? So I originally started as a kitchen designer, and I did interior design. I went back to work after my laparoscopy and I asked them for the accommodations that I needed and I was essentially told that because I'd had so much time off for my hospital appointments that I would fail my probation which meant that I wouldn't have a job at the end of it anyway so I ended up leaving. Wow how did that feel? It was really it was really crappy. I enjoyed my job and it knocked my confidence a lot and I think because I'd been honest and I'd already told them before they offered me the job that I needed these accommodations, and then they weren't willing to commit to them after they'd given me the job. I was just really disappointed. And so did you look for other jobs? I've tried to go back to work a couple of times, but my illness hasn't allowed me to keep up with the physical demands of the type of jobs that I was doing. So when you're in interior design, you go to clients' houses, you have to drive, you have to go up a lot of stairs. It's more physical than you think it is. And I just couldn't keep up, so Mm. I stopped doing that. And I've given myself time to heal, time to rest. And I'm incredibly lucky that my partner works full-time and he earns enough to be able to support me because I know lots of people aren't in that situation. And since then, I've just been building up my graphic design business, my art, and that's basically what I've been doing for the last year and a bit. How much work are you able to do at the moment? It depends. Depends on the day. Depends how I feel when I wake up. There are some days that I can draw for a couple of hours, that I can talk and I can do different admin tasks. And then there are days that I can't do hardly anything at all. 
That sounds really frustrating because, you know, you're clearly an artistic person. You're passionate about what you're doing. And I can just imagine how frustrating it feels that your body's not allowing you to do that right now. Yeah, I beat myself up quite a lot about it. My endometriosis has impacted my mental health somewhat just because I can't do everything that I want to do. And I'm lucky I've got a four-year-old daughter, so I have to be there for her too. And I can't do everything I want to do for her. And I can't do everything I want to do in terms of my work. (laughs) And then on top of that, I've just had a huge surgery to remove my endo. And I had a hysterectomy at the same time. So now I'm going through menopause too. (laughs) What support, if any, are you getting from the government? Because what you're describing is a very serious condition, very debilitating. Yeah, so I get personal independence payment, which is not a huge amount of money. How much do you get? £518 a month. And I get the limited work capability amount from Universal Credit, which is £350-ish. Right. Okay, so it wouldn't be enough to live on, would it? No, not at all. Like I said, if I didn't have my partner he's a self-employed electrician, then I'd be screwed without him. I wouldn't be able to afford to live at all. (laughs) How does it feel to you seeing those sorts of headlines implying that young people don't want to work? It feels like a massive slap in the face. I've always tried my hardest to work as best as I can. And even with my disability, I'm still trying to give back to society somehow by trying to set up my own self-employed business. I think it's just comes from a very prejudiced place. I think if any one of those people had to go through some of the disabilities like endometriosis or some of the other ones that are becoming more well-known about, then they wouldn't be just labeling us a sick note generation. They'd have a lot more understanding. Coming up, What will the Chancellor announce in this week's budget to help people back into work? Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. 
Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Larry, what can the government do to help people who've been off sick for long periods of time to get back into work? I think there are two ways that you can go about it if you're the government. One is that you can use plenty of carrot. The other is that you try and use the stick. And I would strongly advise the government to go down the route of using the carrot, whereby you try and give people job support, give them counselling, give them support before they enter a job and after they get a job to make sure that they don't fall out of the labour market again. Mm. I mean, the stick approach is to just cut people's benefits and try and force them back into work by draconian methods. None of the evidence that I've seen suggests that that will work. All it would do is make people even more unhappy if you've got a mental health problem. Then having your benefits cut doesn't seem to me to be the obvious way of actually dealing with that underlying problem. In fact, it's almost certain to make it worse. So are there things the government could do right now that would begin to address this problem? Essentially, these are long-term problems and they are going to require long-term solutions and costly solutions. And that's the thing. The government has not got very much money at the moment to play with. If you wanted my three-point plan, it would be devote some money now to getting waiting this down to try and deal with some of the people who would be quite willing to work if they were not physically in some ways impaired Mm -hmm. by, let's say, a hip injury or a knee injury or something that could be fixed. Secondly, you would provide hands-on support to those people who have got real mental health issues who need to be not browbeaten into rejoining the labour market but helped into getting over whatever issues they've got. And then you would thirdly deal with the problems of Britain's economic geography. You would find if you went to somewhere in leafy Surrey, not as many people pensioned out of the labour market through ill health as you would if you went to Blackpool or Hartlepool or parts of the country where you've seen deindustrialisation and the scars of that deindustrialisation persist for many, many decades. So those are the three things I would do. But I mean, there's not an instant solution to this. To get the numbers down to even back to 2.1 million is going to take quite an effort. And to get it down beyond that is going to take a sustained effort, not just over one parliament, but over many, many parliaments. There's surely a problem here as well with how much of our economy is being run on insecure forms of labour like zero hours contracts. You know, if you're somebody who is out of work at the moment and looking around for jobs, a lot of the stuff you are going to be seeing advertised is really insecure. And if you're dealing with a long term sickness issue, very difficult to take on that sort of work, isn't it? Because you know that you won't be entitled to things like sick pay. I think that's a real issue. I think that the structure of Britain's labour market over the last 40, 50 years has changed fundamentally. So where people used to have full-time, unionised, protected jobs, there are now large numbers of people are living on the sort of fringes of the labour market, in and out of work. They don't know how many hours they're going to be working from one week to the next. Those jobs are not particularly either well-paid or well-protected or well-supported. If there's a change of government, Labour has proposed changes to the employment law to outlaw zero-hour contracts and to 
end fire and rehire and to have employment rights from day one of a person working, which if it sticks to those things would make a difference, I think. It's difficult, isn't it, for employers, if you run a small business and one of your employees is having to have a lot of time off work because they're sick. That's a big cost to you and a lot of insecurity. Yeah, it is. I mean, it's much more of a problem for a small business. And most businesses in the UK are small businesses. The bulk of businesses employ fewer than 25 people. And for them, if you've got 10 members of staff and two of them are not turning up for work, couple of days a week because of long-term sickness problems and that's a real issue for you and I think that we have to accept that. And the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt is going to be putting out his budget on Wednesday. What, if anything, is he likely to say that might help all these people who are out of work because they're suffering with long-term sickness? I don't think he's going to do that much in the budget to help the long-term sickness problem. I think that, you know, he'll push the problem onto Mel Stride, the Secretary of State for Work and Pensions, who is apparently working on some scheme to try and address these issues. But, I mean, I'm not sure there's going to be very much money around in order to facilitate the sort of schemes that would work. On the contrary, all the mood using in the lead-up to the budget has been of the government looking to save money on the welfare budget in order to make room for tax cuts. What does it mean for us as a society to see these figures of 2.8 million people who are out of work at the moment because they're sick? What does that say about us as a society? First of all, it's 2.8 million people who've clearly got personal problems of some form or another. It's 2.8 individual problems, all different, you know, they're not the same. But as a country, we are clearly losing out massively on that human potential. We could have far more people working, far more people living productive lives, far more people earning money, spending money. We could have a bigger economy. We could have a more prosperous country. It's clearly an issue that is going to require serious attention at some point. There are good reasons why people can be inactive. They can be students, they can be looking after elderly parents. But to have that many people inactive because of long-term sickness or disability or ill health, that to me is a national scandal. Ridian, where would you like to be in, say, a year's time? In a year's time, I would like to be in a job that I feel like I could do. I want to be able to earn more money than I'm on now so I can live a more comfortable life and so that I can join my friends on their escapades because they've been doing exciting things this past, gosh, it's been about past year now, I think. And I can't take part in these things oftentimes because I don't have the money. So contrary to what the government would like you to believe, I do want to work. I do actually want to find a job and contribute. But it has been extremely difficult doing that, mainly because there just aren't the opportunities. You do see a lot of jobs advertised, but the things that they ask from you. Like, we expect you to have a degree, or we want you to have five or ten years experience in this industry for minimum wage. It's very demoralising. And would you feel confident going to employers now and asking them for reasonable adjustments? No, frankly. I feel like, and maybe this is just the cynic in me speaking, but I do honestly feel like if I went to an employer and asked for reasonable adjustments, they would just look at someone else, they'd look for someone who doesn't require the reasonable adjustment. 
someone who's going to cost them less money to employ. If healthy people are being dropped at the drop of a hat, what hope do disabled people have? I hope for anybody out there who's listening to this, where they are thinking that their life is in a bad place at the moment, it isn't the end of the world. You will get through it. You are strong enough. We're all strong enough. And you can beat whatever is holding you back right Thank you very much, Ridian. Thank you. Thanks again to Ridian, Alexandra, and to Larry Elliott, The Guardian's economics editor. Larry's going to be reporting on the budget on Wednesday and what that might mean for you. So keep an eye on his reporting at theguardian.com. Alexandra runs an Instagram account called Endo and Me 2023. And on there, she shares what it's like for her to live with endometriosis. And it's all illustrated with these beautiful images that she's done. It's really inspirational, so please do have a look at that. I'm also going to implore you to listen to The Guardian's new podcast series about artificial intelligence and all the ways it's changing our lives for good and more malicious intent. The series is called Black Box, and we're putting new episodes out every Monday and Thursday, which means there'll be a new one for you today when you hit subscribe. Just search Black Box wherever you found this episode. That's it for today. I'm Hannah Moore. This episode was produced by Courtney Youssef and sound designed by Adam Bransbury. The executive producer was Phil Maynard. We'll be back tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models in dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.